Well, a few weeks ago, our family had the opportunity to take an overnight camping trip to celebrate one of the boys' birthdays, and so we had two friends with us who had never been camping before, and so we went out to First Landing State Park here in Virginia Beach, and um, it was a great time. Uh, the, the two new guys enjoyed it, enjoyed themselves, um, really uh, no mishaps, but there was a moment during the night as I'm lying there and I hear some commotion from the tent next to me, just a few inches from my head, as one of the boys is apparently trying to get out of the tent. And so, you know, in my sleepiness, I'm trying to register what's going on there, and suddenly I hear his voice ring out in the stillness and the dark of night. Um, where am I? And so, I don't always think before I talk, and it was the middle of the night, so I needed an extra moment to process and think how best to respond here delicately. And then it it came to me, and so I said, uh, you're in the middle of the woods. (laughs) And then I, I realized that it didn't come out quite as sensitively as I meant, so I added, are you okay? And so there's another moment, and I'm wondering, oh, goodness, is there an, an issue here? That's, you know, I'm waiting for that response. And he says, yeah, I just wanted to know where I was. And then apparently settles back into the bed and uh, resumes sleeping. We didn't, we didn't talk again until the next morning, and he didn't remember any of it. So, But it's just like we sang in the song, when we can't see past the dark of night. Or when we try to put on this new microphone headset thing, it's easy to get lost and disoriented. Sometimes we run into circumstances where we don't know what's going on and we don't know what's happening around us. We, we can't read the situation properly. And it's distressing and it can be a, an occasion for despair. And we get worried, we get nervous. We wonder what's out there that we don't know about, that we're concerned about. Even when we think that we're doing great things, sometimes when we've risen to new heights, we're at risk of missteps and plunging into destruction. So another little event from our trip went like this. I've told you stories before about our sweet little puppy, Aria. She's about to turn three years old this week, and uh, she's gotten much better behaved in the two years that we've had her. But she still is just absolutely crazy about squirrels and other little critters that have furry tails. And when when she gets the scent of one of those things in her nose or catches a little glimpse of motion, she's off. And no, absolutely no awareness of her surroundings or danger or anything like that. In fact, just today we were out for a run this morning and um, she just leapt and plunged into this thicket and about landed on a rabbit that she flushed out and she took off after it and then got, you know, wrangled as the the leash came to its end. And um, so at First Landing State Park, one of the the things we love about First Landing is that in in the forest area, they have these huge trees with thick trunks, and then their their first level of branches are just like three feet above the ground. They're amazing climbing trees, and then these branches go out for just forever, and they're nice and pretty, pretty flat, and they're super thick, and they're just great for climbing. Well, Aria, our dog, has in the past 
demonstrated her willingness to climb a tree in pursuit of critters. So, and if you can see the, the look on her face there, um, she's intent, you know. Um, so at the park, she readily took advantage of the opportunity to get closer to where the squirrels roam. So this is her, about six feet up there, and, and you know, she's gone up that bow. And um, so we, t- we took this picture, and she's up there for about 15 or 20 seconds. We're watching all this in amazement, you know. And then she inexplicably took a misstep. And thankfully, one of the lads had a camera to capture this. So that's, that's full extension, my dog. So she landed on her forepaws there, about six feet above the ground. Her face caught it next, and then she just kind of flopped to the side. And, and lest you think I am a bad dog parent, which I am, um, she got right up, shook it off, and uh, you know, swam in the Chesapeake Bay, hiked three miles, uh, no ill effects here, about almost two weeks later. So, but even for a dog with their remarkable athleticism and uncanny senses, it's easy to get lost, to get disoriented, to lose track of where you are, and not, not, not know what to do with the danger that's around you. And so last week, Pastor Steve led us into Psalm 51, as we're talking about a song for every season. And he showed us in that psalm how David pours out his heart in confession as he's in this just whirlwind of guilt because of the sins that he's committed of murder and adultery. And that he's just confused and he's, he's in distress because of the distance that he experiences from God, the, the distress of being apart from God, not being able to worship, and the guilt and what that does to him. And so today, as we move forward in our series and wrap up our series in the Psalms here, we're in Psalm 9. So if you want to, you can turn there. We'll read it in a moment. That's page 478 in your Red Pew Bible. But whereas in Psalm 51, David's distress is a product of his own sin, here in Psalm 9, as far as we can tell, his, his own sin isn't the issue. It's the sin of other people. And how does he handle their opposition against him. And so our big idea is that we face trouble in the world, but Jesus has become our fortress of protection, and there's space for many others inside his protection. We face trouble in the world, but Jesus has become our fortress of protection, and there is space for many others inside his protection. So Psalm 9 a song of praise. Let's take a look at this whole thing together and then we'll make a few observations. So in verse one, David says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. 
but the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let no man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. So we don't know the precise occasion of this psalm. We don't know exactly what it is that's going on in David's life that prompts him to write these things and pour out his heart to the Lord this way. We don't know who the specific enemies are. We don't know what the conflict is, what they're fighting over, what the struggle is specifically. But we do know, just from this, the context of David's lifetime and, and Israel's place within the ancient Near East, that they always had a geopolitical struggle going on around them. They were surrounded by nations that didn't follow the, the one true and living God of the Israelites. In fact, when Israel came into that region, they pushed out people who worshipped other gods, and that was part of God's judgment against those people. So from day one, there was antagonism. And so it's very likely that that's the issue here, that David in his role as king, as leader of the people, is having to struggle with some national issue, that he has these armies, he has people coming against him. We can see in verse 5, he makes reference to the nations, that the Lord has rebuked them. In verse 6, he refers to cities. And so there are people lined up against him. And it's his responsibility to protect the nation and to ensure the nation's well-being. And it's not like there's just some trade war going on here. There's not some psychological warfare or, or propaganda warfare going on. In verse 12, he makes reference to the avenger of blood, that there's a violent conflict going on here, that there's, there's true physical danger. And David, in his role as protector and leader, shepherd king of his people, has to worry about the safety and the well-being of his people. And so we, we can't necessarily relate to those specific circumstances, but there are plenty of situations in our lives where we have lots that are on the line, where we have important things that are at stake. Maybe you've, you've had people talk badly about you or spread rumors about you, say negative things about you, and so your reputation is at stake. Or maybe at work or in your classes, at school, or 
even within your family, you've experienced favoritism. That some you've been passed over for a promotion or some other kind of benefit. And so your well-being, your livelihood is at stake. Maybe you have a squabble with your neighbors and you, you, know, you just can't, get, can't come to a, a peaceful conclusion, reconciliation in those matters. And, and it's not just your reputation that's on the line there, but your role as a peacemaker, your ability to, to navigate the world. And, and ultimately, for those of us who believe in Jesus, it's his reputation that's on the line. We don't want to be contentious and, and difficult people. People can just be nasty in our world. And they, you know, you can't, you haven't necessarily even done anything. And sometimes you just run into a nasty person. And that, so our mental health and our joy are at stake, right? But then many of others of us here are responsible for other people. That we have people relying on us, like David was responsible for his nation here. That the well-being of others is influenced by our decisions and our actions. So we have some families here in our church that are in the middle of custody battles right now. Others of you are caring for aged parents. And there are some disagreements with siblings about some of those things. And those situations can get nasty and get difficult when there's disagreement and a lack of harmony in those things. And when you have the weight of the responsibility for others on your shoulders, it can make those things very difficult can make for some sleepless nights, just not, not knowing what the next move is, or, or even it's the fear of uncertainty, not knowing where the next move is coming from and what it's going to look like. And so how do we put up defenses all the way around in order to handle whatever may come? And it's exhausting, difficult. And David talks about that emotional state he he calls it affliction in verse 13 he says be gracious to me O lord see my affliction from those who hate me so he expresses that angst that distress that he's in because of his enemies because of this opposition because he doesn't know where the next attack is coming from but i think if you notice, we're right here in the middle of the psalm. We jumped right to the middle of the psalm. And I, I think this is just a passing expression of David. I don't think this really expresses his real state of mind here in the psalm. I think he's just acknowledging how, how circumstances have been difficult for him. But if we go back to the very beginning of the psalm, and I think that distress is kind of the backstory, but in verses 1 and 2, he's pouring out his heart in praise and thanksgiving for who God is and what he's done. It's Thanksgiving Day for David here in the first two verses of the psalm. And in verse 2, he expresses just his appreciation, his gratitude for being in relationship with God, with knowing that he's there. And so that, that erupts from him in praise, in publicly expressing God's greatness before others and doing it in the form of a song here in the psalm. And David's grateful because his victory is already accomplished. God has already provided salvation, victory for him. If you see in verse 3, we get the first mention of David's enemies. And what are they doing in verse 3? They're retreating already. They're running away already. The first mention of his 
enemies, and they're fleeing. And they're fleeing because of the very presence, the powerful presence of God interceding on David's behalf. David is grateful. He, he praises God because his victory is already accomplished. And folks, our victory is already accomplished. Amen? Jesus died to pay for our sin so that we don't have to inherit the penalty of eternal separation from God because of the wrong things we do. He defeated the, the enemy of sin when he died on the cross. And Satan, Satan has been rendered powerless by God's victory over him. That he can accuse us, but there's nothing that's gonna stick for those of us who have followed Jesus, who those of us who trust in his death to erase the penalty of sin for us. God's overcome Satan and he's overcome death. Jesus rose from the grave. The grave couldn't hold him. And so sin, Satan, death, for those of us who believe in Jesus, the victory's already won. Now we're realizing that victory. It hasn't been brought to full fulfillment yet. That's why we still struggle with sin and temptation to sin. That's why Satan still gets under our skin makes things difficult for us. That's why we still die here in this life, but we have that great hope of eternal life with Jesus one day, that death isn't the end. Death is just a celebration of the, the time we've had here in life as we go on to be with our Lord. Our victory is accomplished. It is won. And David, as he acknowledges that his victory is accomplished, and we see in verse seven and eight, the Lord sits enthroned forever. He knows that God is all-powerful, that he can't be defeated, that that, end, that that victory can't be snatched back from him. And so having recognized God's compassion, his authority, his power, his justice, in verse 9, David says, the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. He expresses his confidence in his God. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. He sees God as a fortress. Another word would be a refuge, a stronghold. And what's the purpose of a stronghold or a fortress? It's to provide protection for those who are inside of it, right? And so what, what are the only two things that can render a stronghold or a fortress ineffective? If it's too weak, right, and it, it tumbles down, it's, you're able to penetrate it and get in there and mess with the people that it's supposed to protect, right? That's, that's not the problem here. God is not a weak fortress. We just established that his victory can't be taken away from him. He can't be, he can't be overcome, so this is a fortress that's sure, it's absolute. It can't be overcome. But the other way that a fortress is ineffective is if you don't go inside of it. If you don't take advantage of it. And so many of us, when we see enemies in our face, our first instinct is to get into that fighting posture, right? Dig in our heels, grit our teeth, and we're going to take on those enemies. 
We do it in our own strength so often. And as, as we square off, we lock eyes with that enemy. Sometimes we see that there are some other enemies there alongside of them. Oh, this looks a little tougher than it did at first. So we engage and it, we take some licks, we take some shots, it's tough. We're still going to stay in there because it's noble to stay in there and fight, isn't it? And then finally, it gets hard enough where you just got to take off and run, right? I'm not going to let those enemies get a hold of me. But we run in the opposite direction of our fortress, in our, in our own strength, in our own desire to solve our problems, and in our own desire to conquer our oppositions on our own, we go farther and farther away from where safety and security is in the fortress of God's presence. And so I'd, I'd urge you this morning, come into the fortress. Enjoy the safety. Enjoy the sanctuary that's there inside the stronghold of God's grace and his victory. Victory is won. When we believe in Jesus, we always know that our destination is victory and rest. It's sure we can enjoy the victory God's provided for us. We can rest in it, inside that fortress. And when we do that, when we get beyond our own worries, because we're completely safe in him, when we get beyond our own worries, we can usher others into his presence. The way we get into that, the way we get into his safety, the way we enjoy that is by praising him. It's by reminding ourselves, like David does here, it's speaking forth his excellence, his greatness, reminding ourselves, going on record and saying, God has been so good to me. He is great. He is supreme. And as we share that with other people, then we help them to take advantage of that refuge he provides for them. That's our purpose as disciples of Jesus. It's to praise him and make his glory known and to beckon, to call people in to, the, to his gracious presence. It's our purpose as the church. It's our purpose to do like Jesus did and to take enemies, those who would be opposed, and to turn them into allies that they'll come into the stronghold and they'll help support that stronghold. So we see in the last part of the psalm here what David's enemies are like. And So if we're going to go out into the world, if we're going to try to make enemies into allies, if we're going to share the praise of God with people and beckon them into the security and the victory that he provides, it's helpful to know some things about who they are and what, what they're facing, what they're struggling against. And so we see in verse 15, the nations have sunk in the pit that they made, in the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. And so we have this tendency as people to, to do things that are self-destructive. Whether it's things that we we openly acknowledge are not healthy or not good for us, like overeating on Thanksgiving. Oh, sorry, forget about that. We, we do these things sometimes willfully, knowing that they're not good for us. But there are other things 
we may just kind of kid ourselves. Maybe it's a relationship with somebody or maybe it's a financial decision and, and it doesn't look like it's a good idea, but well, we'll see how it works out. And so we, we do these things that are self-destructive, that they, they come back to bite us. Verse 16, the Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. And so to, why does God allow us to be self-destructive or how does he use it? Well, he helps us to see our own inadequacy when we do that. I don't know about your story of how you came to know Jesus, but definitely for me, my self-destructive behaviors were part of what helped me realize I need Jesus in my life. I can't do it on my own. I'm, if I do, I'm going to run the thing into the ground. I'm my own worst enemy. And so even, even as people who follow Jesus on a daily basis, we still slip up, we still make mistakes, we do dumb things. And those help us recognize our need for God's grace repeatedly, daily, not just for a one-time decision to get on his team. God makes himself known through our self-destructive behavior. And then in verse 17, the wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. And so we have this tendency, especially if, if we're living in ways that don't line up with God's expectations of a good life, what a good life looks like, we have this tendency to forget that he's there. It's just easier that way, right? We don't have to worry about the guilt. We don't have to worry about the, uh, just the constant reminders, that nagging conscience. So we forget God. And, it, and a lot of people forget about God because they say, well, he's silent. I, I sought him and I didn't hear anything. Or he's, he's inactive. How does he let all these things go on in the world that happen? Good questions, good questions. I don't think God is silent because his voice rings clear through his word in the scriptures. And so I challenge those people, have you sought him in the word, in the scriptures? Have you looked at the life of Jesus? Have you heard Jesus speaking in the scriptures? Have you spent time with his people where his spirit resides in them actively, living and active today? Because God isn't silent and he's not inactive. We can see it all throughout the psalm. David knew God wasn't silent or inactive. So if it's easy to forget about God, I think that's it's just a demonstration of our neediness, of our weakness, and of our willfulness, our rebellion against God. Of course, our role as people who remember God, like we did last week in communion, this do in remembrance of me, Jesus tells us, it's our, our job to help people remember that God is there and that he has spoken and that he is active and that he loves people, that his son died, that Jesus died, God himself paid for our sin on the cross. It's our job to remind people of that as the church. Because for people who forget God, verse 17 tells us their end is death. And ultimately, they're going to be swallowed up by that enemy, death, that Jesus has conquered, that he's overcome. So we need to beckon people into that safety, 
into the life that God's provided. Because our hope does not perish, it lives. Our hope goes far beyond death, far beyond the troubles of this day. Our hope is eternal. Verse 18, for the needy shall not always be forgotten. Even though God is forgotten by these people, he doesn't forget the needy. And the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. And so the person who is able to acknowledge his neediness, which, which is all of us, but the person who acknowledges that he's needy, that he's spiritually poor, is the one who can receive the provision and the riches of who God is and what, what comes from relationship with him. The victory, the assurance, the ease, having wind in your sails, walking with God throughout life. Yeah, we run into struggles, but there's a grace for those struggles. Temptation isn't as scary when we know that God's overcome sin. When Jesus died, paid for that sin, and there's no accusation against us anymore. But people are needy and poor. They forget God. They do self-destructive things. And so... We need to be people who are willing to speak openly about who God is. That we need to do what David does in the psalm that he cries out, I will give thanks to the Lord of my whole heart. This is who we're to be as the church, as his people. We recount all his wonderful deeds. And we're glad and we exult in him, even in trials, even in difficulties. We sing praise to his name, not just here for an hour on Sundays, but every day of our lives. And we tell among the peoples his deeds, like we see in verse 11. When we do that, when we let praise go out from us, when it resounds from who we are as people and who we are as the church, then it opens the door of the fortress for enemies to come in and to enter his refuge. It shows them that they're welcome and that there's a place for them it's going to be so much easier, so much better than that self-destructive, forgetting God, poor and needy place. On the cross, Jesus trusted in his God. He took shelter in the Father's power and love. And in so doing, he blessed the world. Jesus emptied himself and became obedient to death. He stared into the very jaws of his enemy, death. And he didn't flinch. He didn't shy away because he knew he was secure in his father's love and care. So we grit our teeth, we dig in our heels. Jesus is the only one who's strong enough to do that. He's the only one who can stare down the enemies. He knew that God's victory was final and definite. And so he endured the cross, scorning its shame. In the midst of his affliction, he gave his praise to God. He's on the cross, and he remembers the God who is not surprised by anything that's happening, the God who, by his perfect will, sent his son to be punished on the cross for the sins of mankind. 
And Jesus says, Father, forgive them. He praises the Father for his perfect plan of salvation. Forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And there's a thief next to him on the cross, and he says to him, Today, you, thief, will be with me in paradise. What a great picture of the grace of God that with simple faith, your, your outlook changes immediately. That you can be in paradise the minute you believe in him. Go from death to life in a moment's notice. And then when he finally died, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He acknowledged where he was safe and sound, who his stronghold was. And in his death, Jesus provided the ultimate refuge and safety and salvation for humankind from every enemy that we will ever face. So the gates are open wide. Flee into his presence. Trust him in each and every trial of life and bring as many as possible with you. Beckon them to come along as many as you can to safety in him. Let's pray. Lord God, we cry out with David, Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. We trust that you are the only one who saves. And so our desperate cry rises to you. May your word and your truth and your love prevail upon the earth. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Show those who don't know you their absolute need of you. Enable them to see their weakness, their affliction, their neediness, and enable them to surrender to you. Move them to find refuge in your presence. Release them from the grip of their anger and vengeance and unrighteousness. Cause the peoples to fear you and give you praise alongside your people. Thank you for revealing these things to those of us who do know you. And may we continue to rest in the victory you've accomplished for us once and for all. And may we continually open our mouths in exultation and in praise for the great salvation you've accomplished for us. Thank you that all that you require of us is simple faith. Lord, help us all to trust in you in all things. We pray this in the glorious and saving name of Jesus, by your empowering spirit. Amen.